you would be turning open to the book of Ezra. We're going to be hopping around a little bit in Ezra, maybe a little dip into Nehemiah this morning. But Keith has given me wonderful intro, intro. Because how does that sit with you? How does messing with your routine sit with you? Excuse me while I get a sip of a lovely beverage. This is part three of our series, Returning from Exile. As Peter said, uh, tell you what, looking out over, we go on the second floor from the administrative part of the building, we walk out and can see the auditorium, everybody working, and periodically during the day you'll catch a couple of us just looking over the railing, leaning on it, looking out. But going in there, we can hear, I can hear the worship that will take place in that building. And oh, how sweet. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we as a church are returning from exile, this exile experience that we've been talking about. But in that exile experience, uh, even thinking toward, you know, we're, we're very much creatures of habit, aren't we? If you're anything like me, you know what time to get up on Saturdays to have your two cups of coffee and then go get dressed and then walk out of the door at a particular time in order to come to church for, that, for the particular time that you're coming for. And even if you get an extra light, it throws off the routine because everything is time. I was like that in high school. I knew exactly when to wake up and go to my locker in the field house to put my baseball stuff up and I'm walking through the doors as the bell's ringing so I could go upstairs. But man, if I hit traffic, I was late. We time everything. We're creatures of habit. We're, you know what? We found, I think, with Gustav that we're very much creatures of habit when it comes to our devotional lives. Huh? Saw this with Katrina as well. But even with Gustav, it reminded us. How, how long did it, did it take you to get back on course with reading the Bible? And just a personal study time. It seems that, and think about in having no power even, you just... And all of that, from whether it was the experience of Katrina or Gustav maybe having no power, having to evacuate, you're watching the TV all the time to find out how you're going, then you, there's another hurricane coming that we're trying to be concerned about, what we're going to do, how that's going to happen. But even think, think personally in your life, in your relationships. Think, think just how things go. We have these, these moments where we just feel like things are on hold. Relationships, perhaps. Or job experiences or school. You just never think you're going to finish school. We have these, these holding patterns, and, and within these holding patterns, I think what becomes, what becomes routine for us is the rut that becomes normal. We have this rut, it's just kind of what we're doing, it's the way we do it, and we fill life up with this rut, and, and we have these particular stop-off. We're going at a particular speed, we have these stop-off points, and to add another stop-off point, we don't know what to do with that. To coordinate carpooling to church is another stop-off point. How do we do with that? How do, we, how do we exist as a church, but also privately in our own lives when we have the stop-off point of, wait a minute, spend some time today in the Scriptures. Spend some time today praying and just sensing the heart of God and communing with Him. To where there's a refreshing to your soul that is oh so tasty and good. How do we do with rut. And particularly if we're not careful, the, the, the new normal that we experience, and all of us experience a new normal after Katrina as a church, and maybe uh, with your work, maybe you were looking for something else, maybe you had an interim job before something else picked up later on. There's, if we're not careful, this new normal becomes the normal, and it's not perhaps what God anticipated, and that new normal becomes affecting your involvement in the church, it becomes affecting in your involvement in coming, it becomes, it affects things. It affects, well, if, if I sign up for a particular need in ministry, that's going to be another stop-off point. I really don't know what I'm going to do with that. So I personally think that when we use the excuse of time, I just, I just don't have time. And really, time is just... I found myself after Katrina actually catching, wait a minute, I have plenty of time now. Why, do I, why does that excuse keep on coming out of my mouth? It just got normal. It's normal to be busy. It's normal to have something else to do. And so a lot of times we'll have nothing to do that night, but... How are you doing? Man, things are busy. Well, not tonight. I'm going home. I'm just going to veg, really, and just hang out. and You know, nothing. But tomorrow, I've got things to do. And then and the next day, I've got things. 
It becomes normal to say, oh, I'm busy. Well, today I think, I believe the heart of God for us to experience His Word today is for us to to question where is the realm of faithfulness and faith-filledness in our lives when it comes to the exile experience. Look at uh, Ezra 10. Turn open to chapter 10, verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoahan, Jehoahanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. He was mourning over the... And we'll see in a moment, this is not the first time he went away to cry and mourn about the faithlessness of the exiles. I believe the Lord would want us to consider this morning, how has faithlessness seeped in and become become woven into the normalcy that we're experiencing life privately as well as corporately as a church? How is faithlessness being woven in there to where it's got the fruits of making, and many times, bad decisions? See, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are, are about restoring the exiles, particularly in two ways, worship and the word. We're going to see in a moment how Zerubbabel came back with the first wave of returned exiles, and they're coming and they establish worship worship yet again. And then Ezra comes a little later and they establish the word again. And we'll look at these in a little more detail, but, but capture this. And Nehemiah, he's also doing that. They're building out the wall, but they're, they're reading the word together. And they're making sense of it, the Bible says. But woven in there, when faithlessness is occurring, ask the question, where's worship and the word in our lives? See, there's a little, I think, a, a downward spiral of distance, because I think what happens, I think what is very, very common in an exile experience is that you feel, you feel far from God. I just feel distant. I feel that God is over there somewhere. I'm over here. I'm trying to make sense of things. I don't know how. I don't know how to, to make sense of things. And, and decisions are facing you, and you're trying to figure out, what in the world should I do? And you're praying, not feeling like those prayers are being answered. God, where are you in this? Well, I think this happened for the Israelites as well. I think we can benefit from their experience of this distance away from the purposes of God and the plan of God for their, for their existence as the people of God. But I think, and you see in your outline, there's this little train of thought that I, I'm very linear in my... It's, I know it's vertical, but it's still a line in your notes. I'm very logical and analytical like that. I, I want things to line up like this. That's why whenever I read the book of James and... and anything that John writes, because they're cyclical in their thoughts, I can't quite capture it. Well, are you talking about number one again? We're on number three. Why are you going back to number one? I like to portion things out. So this isn't this infallible, this is how everything exists for us. We have it solved. This is just for me to helpfully make sense of what's going on. But I think to help us, how, how do we get to the point of getting, get, saying, God, how did my life end up like this? Why are we here? You ever ask that question? God, why are we here? How did, I, how did I get to right here? And you try to trace back and have some things. Well, the, here we have in Ezra 10, starting in the back of the book, that Ezra's mourning the, the faithlessness of the exiles. How did they get here? Well, if you remember last week in Jeremiah 2, why were the people of God sent away from Israel, and particularly Jerusalem, the place where the temple was? Well, because they forsook God. And they chose to hew out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no, hold no water. They looked out and said, we, we can do this a different way. We, we, we can, well, actually what they try to do is say, we can do God and some other of these little things because we just don't quite see when God's coming through. So let's try some other things with the, the Baal worship and all that stuff to just try to get something happening for us around us because we just feel that there's just something apart and, and distant perhaps. See, before distance occurs in our relationship with God and before distance occurred for Israel, distance had already occurred in their hearts. 
because of faithlessness. Israel, Israel was judged and sent into exile because they had not the faith that God called them to have in him. And we see the effect of that as we read the story. God calls all whom he saves to live by faith. We see in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, that the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul quotes this again in Romans chapter 1. What? He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for the Jew first, then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God is looking for his people. To respond to him with faith. Hearts filled with faith. Hearts that say, God, you indeed are God. You are the one that's God. We will serve you. We will love you because you, you are God who has saved us. We find that. You see, God didn't... We, we, a lot of times it's very easy for us to think, well, God sent everybody out. He, he had... The Assyrians and Babylonians come and take everybody away into exile because they weren't following the Ten Commandments. But that's not quite accurate because them following the ten, not following the Ten Commandments was actually a result of their faithlessness. Because what, but way before any list of the Ten Commandments comes, what do, what do you find written? Remember the Lord your God who called you out of slavery in Egypt. Remember Him and do these things. A gracious God comes and rescues his people, comes and rescues them when they're small in number, they're the weakest, they're the limpest. Come rescue them. And he says, remember what I've done. Trust me. Trust me. Believe me. And walk this way. He calls us to do the very same thing. He's looking for his people to live by faith. And when there is not faithfulness, there there almost immediately is a sense of distance from God. Now, for Israel, this is an actual distance. They were removed from Jerusalem. Now, think about it. They were removed from the place of worship and the centrality of the scriptures, the centrality of the law, as they would call it. The centrality of the picture of God's plan and purpose for their lives. They were removed from that and they were distant from it. They were not able to be reminded by going to the temple and offer sacrifices. They were not able to be reminded of the law and the promises of God if they fulfill that law and they trust him and live by faith. There, they were away from, there was a distance, an actual distance. Now, I, I think for believers, for Christians, there's a, a perceived distance that we have with God. But nonetheless, we experience a distance. We have plenty of promises and assurance in Scripture that God, whom God saves, and we learn this as we're going through John, in John chapter 6, the one that the Father awakens and calls, he keeps and he's there, and God's promises that he'll never leave, leave the, the one whom he saves or forsake the one that he, that he saves. But yet, when there, there's a call for us to live by faith and to respond to God by faith, but when the faithlessness is found in our own hearts, oh, we sure feel distant from God. Of course, we usually put it on him. God, you're far from me. But in actuality, it's us that are creating the distance because we have some, we we might have a habitual sin pattern. We certainly feel far from God when there's sin occurring and we're trying to stop and and just can't. Certainly, we feel as somehow God is apart from us because that sin is clouding our spiritual senses and we just don't sense God's nearness. Or perhaps it's a wrong interpretation of suffering. There's suffering that we're going through. Suffering produces a feeling of, God, where are you? The psalmist, how long, O Lord? There's, there's, there's a cry of a distance, but there needs to be a correct interpretation of that suffering, in the midst of that suffering, to identify where God is in the midst of, of, of equipping you for that suffering and revealing himself for faith. How about pride and self-reliance? We can certainly, when we put our hands on the wheel, we can certainly feel, and then, of course, we wreck the car. God, I mean, where were you? We had this feeling of, of God, where are you? It's, and, but sometimes we just want to live life on our own terms. I just don't want to do it that way. I really want to do it this way because it's more pleasing to me. How about anxiety? When we, when we experience anxiety in our lives, we can sure feel distant from God. 
And you know, I, I found that after um, the experience of Katrina, I ask a whole lot more questions. Just ask questions of life, about what are you going to do, how it's going to happen, that I never asked before. We have many questions, and questions aren't bad. It's how we answer them that can be the sticky point. How about just an ungodly life comfort level? You just you enjoy ease, you enjoy the life at your speed and the way that you want it, and yet when you go to read your Bible, dry. Come to worship, can't get into it, doesn't do anything for me. Why is that? Well, we feel distant. Well, I just don't feel like when, when I worship or I read the Bible, God's there. Well, possibly because you're worshiping the idol of ease. See, we, we have a perceived distance that we, we have. So we have a faithlessness that's found in our hearts. And, and we see that in Israel, in, in their experience. But then we get to this point of feeling distant from God. And when we feel distant from God, here come the distractions. Because we're looking to fill some kind of void. We're looking to worship. We're looking to be satisfied. We're looking to have something in our hearts be affected by, by something that can give us meaning and purpose and, and a desire to get up the next day, a desire to go through the day. So we begin looking around and look, the world comes real fast at this moment. Because that's where the, the, it's, the lure is real shiny. It's glimmering in the water and we, we say, oh, this is going to, this is going to be for me right now. And this is going to be something that's going to appease me. This is going to bring comfort. This is going to bring peace. This is something that I just need. Whether it be from a relationship or food, it could be, this is just bringing pleasure for me right now. Distracted. So we, faithlessness is found in our heart. It, 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 it we breeds distance. We don't feel like God's close to us. And then we're distracted. And then when there's not faith in our hearts, fear comes rushing in. Now, for Israel... Perhaps they had a fear of, is God ever going to bring us back to our homeland? Is he, is he ever going to, what's going to happen? How are we going to live life? How are we going to do this? Is he, is he there? Is he going to bring us back? Uh, remember that Isaiah guy and that Jeremiah guy saying that he would, but I just, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it right now. Because when our picture, and here Israel is removed from Jerusalem, the very place of the reminder of the, of, of the law of God and the worship that was taking place there through the sacrificial system. Here is, they're removed from that, they're distant from it, and now they're feeling, well, what's going to happen? See, when their picture of God was shrinking, fear began to increase. And it happens the same way with us. When our picture of God and, and who he is and all of his promises for us, when they begin shrinking, fear wells up inside of us. See, the opposite of faith is fear. If we're not trusting God, then we're fearing something. And that fear is going to produce a worship. That fear is going to produce a choice. It's going to say, no, I need this right now because it's going to satisfy something in me. It could be a fear producing self-reliance and self-dependence. It, causing us to put our hands on the wheel, like I said, but, but it, this, is, this is fear of man. This is fear of uncertainty, fear of the future, fear of finances. See, when fear is here, we're, we're fear of suffering. I don't want to suffer, and I'm afraid I will suffer. And fear of, you fill in the blank. We have fears, but understanding that the fear is a result of a lack of faith. Lack of believing God for who He is. So we have faithlessness that leads to distance, that leads to distractions, that produces fear. And now we're at the point of Ezra 10 where we have made some unbiblical decisions. See, the people that were now exiled possibly asking the same questions. Well, where is God? Where is where, uh, we don't see him anymore. We're not able to go to the temple and see his presence. So where is he? We don't know where he is. They began to make decisions based on the fear which resulted from faithlessness. And this is what now Ezra is mourning in the people of God. And what was their choice? Let's look at the choice had to do with relating to the world. Look at one previous chapter, chapter 9 in Ezra. Verse 1. 
after these things, here is he's come in, he's actually training Levites to be in the temple, to work in the temple. And in, in chapter 9, he says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And get this. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. They got in a far-off land where they were consumed with the responsibilities of a new land, where fear began. They're not reminded of the things of God. And even before this, their worship of God was, was what we call syncretism. They're trying to serve God and serve idols. So it's already messed up. It's already from a heart that's not, not faith-filled toward God. And now they get to a, to a place in exile where they say, God, where are you? Are you ever going to return? Are you ever going to come back? And they begin to look around to everything around them and begin to make this, making decisions about their relating to the world. Christian, this is where we need to be very careful because we have ample, ample calling from the Scriptures to be holy in the midst of, an, of a world that's corrupt and fallen. We are to be holy like He is holy, like Christ is holy consecrated to God, separated from the world for His glory to be that light. But we, when faithlessness is there, in our decision-making, is your decision-making, are you compromising? Are you trying to look toward the world to say, well, let me just... For security purposes, let me just do this. Perhaps they were really thinking, well, God, uh, here, I just, I don't have a wife. My son doesn't have a wife. They're going to be there 70 years. What is my son going to do? By the time we get back to Israel, he's not going to be able to have any more kids. So what do, uh, begin making decisions, not remembering what, what has God said? What has God said in his word? What has he said through the prophets? But yet we're going to make decisions now to say, well, let's just go ahead. You just marry off this one just to preserve the nation. They were doing it in the name of God, probably. We need to preserve the nation, but yet they weren't informed. Why? Because of fear and the root of unbelief. Not There's a faithlessness that occurred there. You can even see here, he, this is... Look at down in verse 6. Here Ezra's response is saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Look at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And some of them have come and said, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. They say, Let's make a covenant. Let's go. Let's make an oath to separate ourselves from the people of the land. And then we get after this to verse 6. Here's the context then of Ezra. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. See, what he's realizing is that the faithlessness that was before the exile has now been traced all the way through the exile to now they're making unbiblical decisions. But you know when he does that? After, in chapter 3, worship is restored. And after, in chapter 7, he comes to restore the centrality of the Word of God. It now brings this revelation of, oh, no, what have we done? But he said, there, there, and he had to remind Ezra, there is hope. And there is hope. In the midst of our exile experiences, there is hope. In the midst of our exile experiences and relationships and jobs and school and with the church, there is hope. And it comes from a restoration and this road of restoration that we're traveling on where worship and the word become prominent to us. 
They become the very vehicles that build and strengthen faith in us so we can have biblical decision-making. We can respond to circumstances and suffering by faith and in faith and not look to functional idols that are around us. You know, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses, and he's telling them, look, we're going to get in this land, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask how their people, in essence, how those people solve their problems, because you're going to go to them and say, hmm, how do you worship your God? But in, he's saying, be careful of that, because you're going to go off and you're going to ask, how do you worship your God? But why are you doing that? You're doing it from a heart that's not believing God. You're doing it from a heart that's probably saying, I need to see something right now. Got no produce, got no fruit from the land, need to see something happening now, and we in the name of quickness. That's what we do. We are in need of a restoration, I believe, but we we have hope. Look in Ezra chapter three, if you be turning there. Here, the worship that they had even before there is an exile experience is weirded out. It's wrong. Even in Isaiah chapter 1, we find that God is telling his people through Isaiah that their sacrifices have become an abomination to him. Why? He said, because you're bringing me vain offerings. And he says this very interestingly in verse in Isaiah 1, 13. He says that the Lord could not endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You know what that means? The Lord could not endure His people coming, playing like they had holy hands, but they were filled with sin. Coming, worshiping, saying, Oh God, You're the one. You're the one we trust. You're the one here. Here's my offering. Here's my sacrifice. God's saying that's absolutely not what's occurring right now. Because while your hands are here, your hearts are far. While you're looking to do this solemn assembly, you're looking to gather with everybody and still be my people and still do all the things that you now you think you're just supposed to do to remain in the land. God, it's almost as if God's saying, you've reduced me to a trinket, a good luck charm, a trinket that you can rub and shake or whatever to try to get what you want. But yet, the heart's... Far from God. See, there is, I think, an aspect that we need to understand about worship, that worship strengthens faith when it is done by faith. Worship is strengthened, and our, uh, rather, worship strengthens faith when we come to worship by faith. Take for that example Genesis chapter 22. Here Abraham is going up to the mountain with his son. And he has already been told, go to the mountain and sacrifice your one and only son. Well, not one and only, but your son of promise. Go and sacrifice this son of promise on this mountain. And he's walking and they're traveling. And here Abraham's got his servants. And there and now he straps. He, he, he's down, not onto the mountain yet. And he's, he takes the wood perhaps off of his servant. And he puts the wood on his son, on Isaac, and straps it to Isaac, and he says, come. And he tells the servants, stay here, for we're going to worship and we're coming back. We are coming back. Faith, the father of faith. So here, Isaac has the wood on his back. What a picture of Jesus. Here, he's coming up, he's bringing this. He says, Father, where is the sacrifice? He said, the Lord will provide, but yet... Now it's reversed, not the wood being on top of the sun, the sun being on top of the wood and getting ready. The angel says, stop. Now there, there is a faith that is found in Abraham's heart to where he says, I know, and we find out this from Hebrews, that he knew God would raise him from the dead if he needed to. But he knew we're coming back. There's a faith that existed that God, I believe God gave Abraham to be able to respond to him. But when he, this also connects the sacrificial system, and worship. There's a connection here where he says, we're going to go and worship, we're going to offer a sacrifice, then we're going to come back. Worship strengthens faith when it's done by faith. Because I believe when he came back down, what happened? There was a faith, uh, we believe that Abraham had in God that he would use the son of promise for what God said he would use the son of promise for. Strengthened his faith because he approached it by faith. We see, even see in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel's offering was accepted by God, but not Cain's. And we can look to Hebrews 11 to find the answer for that because 
Abel offered a sacrifice by faith. An offering, rather. It was an offering from the ground. When we have sin that is occurring in our lives, when we have a faithlessness, really the sin of unbelief, when we have sin, uh, and, and, but we might come, what I'm trying to say is that it's, it, it, it hampers our experience and our expression in worship. It, ha- it hampers our experience of worship, but it also hampers our expression within worship. Because when we, and we've all experienced this, We've sinned, and we know we've sinned, and we feel ashamed, and we can identify even with what Ezra is saying. I feel ashamed. I feel like I can't even lift up my head to God. And we come, and church happens to be the next day. And we come to church, and we're just, we're, we just feel far from God. And so we're not experiencing worship in this moment, and we're not expressive in our worship in this moment because we... See, we think it's because we sinned, and we just, it, I just sin. But really, that's not the sin that's preventing us from worshiping. Our sin of unbelief is preventing us from worshiping. Because in that moment, we are not believing that God will forgive or has forgiven our sin in the sacrifice of His Son. Do you see that? There's, there's faith that we are to live by. And when we respond to the things of God within the context of the church that He's called us to, to be in and experience Him in, we come by faith. If we don't come by faith, we, we look like this during worship. Just, whether, but it could be these other things. It could be anxiety. It could be just be consumed with things, a job or school or a relationship. We're just consumed with these things and it's distracting us. But yet, I believe those things can be traced back to where it's unbelief in our hearts. It's a faithlessness saying, God, I don't think you're bigger than these things. But he is. He is. And there we find, look in chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Then arose... Yeshua, the son of Yazadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar to its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings onto it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. What do they do? Zerubbabel goes in and according to the law, he rebuilds the altar. Actually, in, in the fear that's in them, you see this fear, fearing the peoples around? Where are they turning? They're responding correctly to the fear. Fear is in our hearts. Let's worship. Let's trust God. God has called us to this. He's called us to this, this sacrificial system. Let's restore this. Let's get this back. And then he travels onward in the chapter and they rebuild the temple. They are establishing worship yet again. And they're, they're bringing back to it the components of what it is, uh, what it's called to be and what it's, God ordained it to be. Look at verse 11. And they sang responsively. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So we have them building the altar again, and now they are singing responsively. Look at the next verse, verse 12. Well, let's finish. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites And heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. We see some components in here that we believe we want our worship to be as a church. And the first component is that is the centrality of the gospel. We find that when they rebuild the altar, what are they doing? They're bringing the remembrance again. One sacrifice is coming that will do away with all sacrifices. 
This will be the one. They're returning to that. And we as a church, we want to have a focus in our worship. And and we are led very effectively in this. We are reminded of the gospel every time we sing. And that's the way it should be. We, Lord willing... We don't want to back down ever from that. But we are singing songs that inform us and remind us of the gospel. Why? Here is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to be reminded of this man. We want to be reminded of this son of God that that came to die for us, that one sacrifice to do away with all the other sacrifices so we could have access to the throne of God and experience his grace Forever, forever, we, we want and, and we come by faith to, to have our faith strengthened by, strengthened by the Son of God. We also see in verse 11 that we are to have a responsive worship. Here, these people came and they sang responsively. There's a call that when there's an, there's an effect in our own hearts, there's a response from that. And we look in the scriptures and we see that the response is a clapping of hands. The response is a shout. The response is a dancing before the Lord. The response is raising hands. It's a response. Why? Because we've seen and been reminded and been faithed in what we're, we're seeing, the gospel and who God is and how he's revealed through Christ. But responsive worship is not reserved for those people whose personalities lend well toward being responsive. This is where we get into the danger of just blaming our personality on why we're not more expressive in our worship. Well, you know, so-and-so is like that. That's just that's how Phil Widener worships, man. It's just him. I'm not Phil Widener, man. I'm just not. I'm just, I have my own way. I have my own way of worshiping. I'll pick on Peter a little bit. When I first came to Lakeview, Peter did this during worship. And every time it came to the word victory, it was victory! But yet, but yet Peter and, and Several years ago now, very thankfully, he he experienced a people within Sovereign Grace Ministries that were responsive in their worship, that he felt the tug of the Lord on his heart to say, be responsive. Don't be English. I don't think you've ever put it that way, but I like that. That's right. He said he did tell the Lord, but I'm English. How am I supposed to respond that way? (laughs) When we are enthralled and encapsulated and so embracing of understanding and growing in understanding of what the cross is all about, we should, like King David, be willing to be more undignified than this. Because it is a responsive Thing. We, as a church, when we go back, I mean, this is privately in your, if you have sin, if there's anxiety, if there's fears ruling your life, be responsive. Be responsive. Why? Because we're being reminded of the gospel, the forgiveness of the gospel, the life and peace and joy that we have through Christ in the gospel. Be responsive. Now, corporately, as a church, we want to be responsive. Now, listen, this is not uh, an adjustment of the church. That we're bringing here. This is simply a stoking of the fire that's already there. You are a responsive bunch. Thank you for your responsiveness and your singing. But we want to be all the more responsive. We will be more undignified than this. To where Matt doesn't have to remind us to clap. We're ready to clap. We're ready to shout. We're ready... When Peter says these are shouting words, we don't have to fear the shout. We know, yes, they're shouting words. Christ has died for me. I enjoyed Wednesday night. We had took the youth to the sea at the pole rally, which is just a, a gathering of all the youth groups in the city. And went here, it's almost a little less than 600 teenagers that were all there. And it was wonderful to hear all of them singing. 
And a couple times, and we had a few guys from, from the church that led worship, and Eric backed away from the, the microphone and just let the voices carry. And how wonderful. How wonderful to hear all of these teenagers. And look, and it was, it was my favorite worship set. I mean, I loved all the songs that were played. They were all my favorite songs, my favorite worship songs. And I, in that moment, I couldn't even sing those songs because I was so captured by God who would reach down to these teenagers and to me. So in that moment, it was a weeping experience for me. It wasn't a shouting experience. It was a weeping experience. But something happened with these folks that you couldn't even distinguish between the two. We don't want to be zombies as a church. We don't want the light switches to have more ability to be turned on than we do. We want to have our emotions engaged in worship. That's, we find this in verses 12 and 13, where there's a wholehearted embracing and experiencing of God. To where, look, ca- capture the distance now. The distance that they want ha- once had has been closed. They're now back. They're experiencing worship. And, and I love the picture of the old men that saw the first temple are overcome and weeping. Weeping at seeing God restore what was gone. And now the foundations have been laid. Worship is back to being central to us as a people. And now we will respond to that. They're weeping. But yeah, you have everybody else shouting for joy that you couldn't, couldn't even distinguish the difference. But what happened? The sound, the praise is what made the distance. But that's how it should be. The only distance there should be is the distance that our praise is lifted up and reaching far off peoples. And, and we, we have the picture and we want to experience in the new building the fact that we will have worship that will resound. It will engage us because we are responsive and then it's going to reach. It's going to reach people. Worship does that. Worship does that. So inviting, inviting somebody to come. Don't be nervous about worship. Don't be nervous about, oh, you know, who are you going to stand by? Are they going to say something weird? <laughs> Where's Phil Weiner? I'm going to stand by him. I want these people to see worship. But that can be you. I had the joy. The first person I met at Lakeview Christian Center when I came in at nine years old was Phil Weiner. And he introduced me to his son, Aaron, who still is a very dear friend. And then we went up to a classroom, to children's church. But yet, all of us will be somebody's first experience in the church. It's not reserved for the select few. Everybody has a part. And we should not, therefore, treat worship flippantly. As if it's just the thing we do before an offering announcements in the Word. No, no, no. It is an expression of us as the people of God, as the church of God. It is what he has given to us to experience him, to respond to, and then have others look on and enjoy that. How do these people love God so much? Watch the joy of the Lord. So we should not be put out of our habits and routine in order to come to church because we should already be coming early and be coming eagerly. I'm ready to worship. I'm wanting to worship. And why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. And now we have, if you look over in chapter 7 of Ezra, we have a restoring of the word in the midst of God's people. Here Ezra has come. He's with the second wave of exiles returning. And Nehemiah later on will bring a third wave of exiles back. And that's in the next book, just right after this. But look at verse 10. Here's the guy that's leading the charge for these, uh, the second wave of exiles coming back into Jerusalem and Judea. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here's the leader coming back. Here's the one coming back to say, look, we need to bring the word back and, and we need to have this. And look, jump over to Nehemiah chapter 8. Just one book. In 
And here they, all the people, in verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who, had, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh, seventh month. And he's reading it to all of these people. He's on a wooden platform that they made for this purpose. And now look at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And when Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yaman, Akub, Shabbatai. Boy, these are tough names. <laughs> Hadiah. Those guys. More, the Levites. Helped the people. I should have gone through that and practiced those. <laughs> Just kind of skimmed over them and studying this week. Look, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The word becoming, see this picture, see this picture of church. Why do we do things the way we do? I think it was because people have searched the scriptures long before us and said, look, they gathered, they made a wooden platform for this purpose. We've made a stage. We actually are having a very cool podium built. Why? For the preaching of the word. And it's above so people can hear and people can see. And we will read from the book of the law. We will read from the holy book. And Lord willing, by his spirit, by his grace, make sense of it and help one another to have the word restored and furthered in us. See, in our exile experience, as well as in Israel's, the word of God is For Israel, it was forsaken and forgotten. And for us in our exile experience, it can be very easy to forget it and ignore it. Why? Because when the faithlessness in our hearts, we come to the Word, we come to reading the Bible, and it's dry, it's distant, it's repetitive. I read this already. I read this before, I didn't get anything out of it. But where do those little things come from? They come from hearts that don't believe God. We struggle with getting into the Word for one reason. Not time. We all, as the children of God, if we are genuinely converted and a child of God, we all have the time to get into the Word. This is why we don't. We don't believe the Word. Why do you tune in to watch the Saints or LSU? I know why I do. Because I think they're going to win. The year they went three and... What was it? Thirteen? I didn't want to watch them because I knew they were going to lose to saints. I, you just know they're going to lose. I'm not watching. I'm not going to waste my time doing that. Why do we tune in? Because we think they're going to win. Why do we tune into the Bible? Because we believe God. That it is the sword. It is the piercing of the word that comes to us and divides bone and marrow. But it brings sustenance and grace and faith to our lives. See, we don't read the Bible in the morning, so we don't sin that day. That's the effect if we approach the Bible by faith. We read the Bible to get a bigger picture of God. We read the Bible to believe Him. We read the Bible to have our souls nourished in faith and perfected in faith to say, God, you are the one that is my God. You are the one that has saved me and you have revealed yourself in this word. Therefore, when I face a temptation today, I don't have to carry my Bible around and do like this to the temptation. Why? Because there's a faith in my heart to believe what I just read. And when I can wield that sword, I don't wield that sword because I've memorized a bunch of scriptures. I wield that sword because the scriptures that I've memorized, I believe and their life and God responds and he comes to us and delivers. Submit yourself to God. 
resist the devil and he'll flee. The Bible is not some tool that we are supposed to figure out how to work to defeat sin. The Bible is a means of God's grace for us to believe him. So we can face whatever temptation may come our way by being filled with his spirit. The Bible, a few things that the Bible, these are not exhaustive as well, but they, the Bible gives us an ever-increasing and ever-enhanced picture and understanding into the character and glory of God revealed in Christ. We see more color to the picture. The picture is enhanced. It grows. It, it strengthens. It, the hues in there, we begin to see an aspect of the glory of God. Oh, I never saw that before. That's awesome. You can read the Bible Remember Bill telling us a story a couple of years ago. He's been reading the Bible for many, 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 many years. And came to a point and said, you know what? I never saw this in Exodus. Never saw it. I do the same thing. God, did you just put that in there? That's never been there before. It is. He awakens us to it. It is so sweet. But he, he increases and enhances the picture that we have that he's providing for us. The Bible also gives, it gives fodder and fuel to our prayers before God. You don't know what to pray? Read the word. Because we see Daniel doing that. We see, in, we see Ezra doing that in Nehemiah, in the very next chapter, in chapter 9. We see, we see uh, well, there's an example just of, of George Mueller. He was a 1800s, he was a missionary to England from Germany. He was in England and he began, he actually went there to be a missionary to the Jews that were in England, but ended up taking in some orphans. And he had these orphans. Uh, very, very, very cool story. If you want to read that, I can recommend some books to you. Praise, God responds within minutes, usually. This has happened at the beginning of the orphanage. And he would go, he would actually read through the scriptures, and he would, he would store up, this is how he said it, he would store up reasons for God's intervention. He would store up, God, you, you need to respond to these kids because of this. You need to respond to these kids because of this. You need to help us because of this. Why? It's the word. Oh, I believe, I believe joy abounds in the heart of God when we come to him with his word. Moses did that. God, remember who you are, who you've revealed yourself us to, uh, to us as you are. And, and don't forget that because the Egyptians, we told the Egyptians who you are. And if you renege on that, then they're going to they're gonna not believe you. All from hearts of faith. The Bible, we see this with Ezra, both in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, also in Nehemiah 9. We see the Bible that when we put the Bible as prominent and central, it brings the conviction of sin. And there's confession and repentance. The grace of confession, the grace of conviction. How good it is of God to tell us when we're doing something wrong. But yet it produces in us a confession and a repentance. It's a primary effect. And then the word, the word also preserves what God is doing in us and what is revealed to us by training us to discern. You know, it is in our exuberance and our excitement usually to know more of God. We could easily turn on a, a TV program where they're preaching or listen to a radio program or uh, perhaps get a book that somebody's recommended to us that said, look, this book's great. You just got to read this. And we say, okay, sure, I'll read that book. But you're listening to things and, and things are being preached and things are being uh, read and, and you're listening to things on the radio. But this is my question to us. Now, I, I appreciate most of us have, the, I believe, the zeal to want to l- grow and learn. God, I want to know more of you, so I'm just going to take in everything I can. But sadly, sadly, we need to be careful doing that because it can be, and it's, it, sadly, because the people of God should be able to encourage one another in this but we are sinful creatures and we uh, we look at there there are preachers that are on tv and radio and they look at one aspect of the bible and they want to central uh, center themselves on that aspect of the bible to the ignoring or really the just avoiding sometimes the rest of the bible but that gives an incomplete picture of who god is but when we are in the Word, you know what happens? When we're in the Word, we can turn on that radio program or, or that TV program or read that book, and we actually, Scripture's coming to mind as they're saying things. And we're just, we can appreciate some aspects possibly, but we're knowing, you know what, that doesn't sound what I just read. That doesn't sound like what, what's in First Timothy. That doesn't sound like the gospel 
of Jesus that I've been reading. Now, sometimes it's just flat-out laziness and unbelief that we don't know the Bible enough to be able to catch those things. So we need to be students. We need to know the Word. But look, like I, that's why I said in the zeal of people just wanting to know God, believe that you can sit down with the Bible and you can know God. He will reveal Himself to you over and over. He will remind you of things and then show you anew, and it is wonderful. But I have actually spent last week uh, reading a book that I've heard about, recommended, was actually recommended to Kathy, that I said, you know, I just want to read that book. And it was the book, uh, you may have read this or seen it uh, with the title The Shack. You can actually go on, it's uh, highlighted very prominently on Christian Book Distributors' website. Um, and there is, there, premise of the story very quickly, a man named Mac goes with his kids, a few of his kids, two are in co- the oldest two are in college. He goes, it's Labor Day weekend, he goes to a camping trip where the youngest daughter is abducted and later on finds out that uh, she's been murdered. Now, I hated the book because <laughs> I, I called Kathy when I saw it. I could just, you could tell there were enough clues. I said, something's going to happen to his daughter. I don't like this because I've got a lot of them. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like where this is going. And then there, there, were, there were parts because the book is very gripping. It's very, you want to find out what happens. You want to find out. But here's Mac, and he's, he has the great sadness that then comes on him. And he goes, uh, he actually is invited by God to an encounter with God at the shack. And it's up in the mountains somewhere, but it actually is the very place where they found, they couldn't, they never found the body, but they found the dress that the girl had been wearing and blood and stuff. So he goes back to this encounter and he is, ends up meeting with God. Now, the, the aspects of that that I think were very helpful were first that God a lot of times will take you very, I think, most times, can't say all times, but I think most times God will take you play, back to the very epicenter of the hurt that has happened in your life to deal with that and reveal himself to you. I do believe that, that God does that. And the book has in it such a... a, a, a and admonishing from God to experience His presence, to surrender and experience His presence. Those are very helpful. But yet, in many ways, the book, in many ways the book gives, I believe, what's lacking is a biblical emphasis in the reasons that God gives to Mac for all the things that are occurring in his life and how he's interacting with God. Um, actually, and we have a handout for you Covenant Group leaders, if you would get that. But if you've read that book, there, again, I want to appreciate everybody's zeal to know more of God, but we must be careful. We must be able to discern what is Scripture and what's not. God actually appears to Mac um, as a woman. And so God is a woman who is, and, he, and the reason is because he doesn't need a father in that moment because his father uh, was abusive toward him, so he needed a mom in that moment. Now, you know, even this, that one example, because it very subtly and systematically breaks down all the doctrines that we hold very, very dear. And, and as you're going along, by the end of the book, he actually becomes a man again. He, he's, he becomes the very man that Mac has always pictured God to be. And so there's a humanistic element to, to bringing to who God, I want God to be this. And it's very subtle, but it's capturing. It's an emotional experience because you're captured by this book to where you want to find out what happens. And, you want, and, it, and some of the things they make, well, that makes sense. But we just need to be discerning in that moment to know where's the scriptures. I actually find myself going, why can't God, in this man's mind, why can't he appear as a nurturing father? Because God is that. Because there's an aspect that we, a lot of times, we take things where we just know women are more nurturing and fathers are more admonishing. And so there's a kind of a brashness to the fathers, but the mother's the one that comes alongside it. That's the revelation of the glory of God and the uniquenesses that he's made us. That's correct. But that doesn't disqualify either from being both. And God can be the one that comes as the admonisher, but yet with an embrace that envelops our souls, our persons, and our everything. And we know, God, you're there. You're there. But that, that is just one example. There are, again, we have some literature in the back that you can... You can pick up on your way out. If we run out, then you can uh, contact the office and we'll make another copy for you. But this is across the board. If we don't know the word enough, we're going to be deceived. You know, what was very interesting about the shack is whenever 
Because this is one of the weird things is that Matt calls God, who's, who is appearing as this African-American woman, calls him Papa, her Papa. But as you hear Papa speaking in the book, it's a woman, you're hearing a woman's voice. And I thought, you know what, that can be very, very, very confusing. And we can make, it's the danger of making God who we want God to be, not who he's declared himself to be. But that happens across the board. Are you listening? Are you understanding? Is there a growing aspect to where we're seeing the Bible and it's becoming alive and it's able to transform our lives? There is joy to be found in the Lord from reading Scripture. Look at chapter 8 in Nehemiah. Verse 10. Well, let's start at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, The day... This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What happened? There was weeping. Because there was a conviction of sin. But right after that, here, the admonishment of Ezra is no more weeping. This is a day holy. Because this is a day where there's hope. This is a day where your soul has been refreshed. This is a day that the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is what we can encounter and we do encounter as we get into the Word. How do we score in the areas that... Ezra listed. He set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. Set his heart believing. God, I want to know you. I want to do it. And you know, a lot of times, and this, we can fall into this rut in our covenant groups, where we store up reasons of how we need to apply the message for later. But that's not the purpose. We are to apply the message now. Well, you know, I think just when that happens, I just need to do this. No, no, no. Today, I need to believe that this is what's wrong, and this is the promise of God. I need to believe in the joy. The Lord will be my strength, and I will pursue Him. So where do we go from here? Remember the purpose of the church, that God has called us to be together. He has redeemed us, and now He wants us, through us, as we live for Him, to display His glory across the whole earth across the world, specifically for our church in this city. But remember, as we talk about the road of restoration and the distance that's being closed now, remember the one that closed the distance for us for all eternity. The one that walked the Via Della Rosa with that beam on his back to go to that place to die for us so we could be brought back to God. We must never, ever believe the lie that we are distant from Him. If He had truly saved us, believe Him. Believe Him. We want to be the church that is on display in our worship because of the one that's walked the road of restoration for us. We want to be the church that's grounded in the Word. Both, again, both of these are privately and corporately. We want to be this church. And we want the fruit of that to be that you serve. That you serve. That time is not an excuse. But with hearts full of faith, you say, God, where are you stirring me to serve? We have many needs moving into this building. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be real exciting to sign up for something. And six months are going, what am I doing again? This is so busy. I don't have the time for this. But that's when we need a reality check of faith. We have, we have needs in hospitality. We have need that everybody, hospitality, everybody needs to do. Everybody, when we go into that new building, everybody needs to be seeking out new people. Yes, let's humble ourselves and say, I'm probably going to meet somebody on Sunday that I've never seen before and ask them how long they've been a part of the church and they say 15 years. Okay, well, it's very good to meet you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I can meet you. <laughs> but there's going to be several people that we don't know. Will you be that first person that somebody comes in contact with? What will your life demonstrate to them? What will we as a church in our worship and our reception of the word, our response to it? declare about God. We must serve in hospitality and kindness and mercy 
The list goes on. Serve, church. But right now, let's worship. Let's respond to God. Let's stand up together. of you to bring to our minds and our hearts how we need to receive more of you in our lives. Thank you for the gracious kindness that you bring to us to show us that we need to live in another way by faith. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for closing the distance that our sin caused us in our separation from God. Thank you for coming to us. And thank you for the promises that you give us. Lord, ignite our hearts to respond to you. Ignite our hearts with passion to love you. Ignite our hearts with faith to see you, to hear you, to trust you with all things.